You're listening to the MoneyWeb Now podcast series with Simon Brown. Live streamed every weekday at 6.30 a.m. It's Wednesday, 24 January. Local inflation due 10 a.m. expected 5.2%. I'm Simon Brown coming at you live and loud from the MoneyWeb Global Headquarters in Johannesburg, South Africa. On the show today, we've got Derek Anari. Why stocks thrive in an interest rate uh, falling environment uh, and which S&P 500 sectors will benefit as rates start to come down? Uh, Lulu Kruger from PwC. So we've got an NPC announcement tomorrow. My big question, we've only got four NPC members. What about a deadlock? What happens if we get a 2-2? Do they just keep on thrashing it out? I don't know. Ask Lulu. Maybe she knows. Uh, and then uh, Conway Williams from uh, Prescient Investment Management. Problems with ESG. It, it started with the Big Bang. It seems to have been faded away and lost its way. How's Prescient managing it? And, and does it work? I mean, I suppose that's the real biggie. The show is brought to you by Stanlip. Visit stanlip.com to get in touch with one of their investment specialists. Stanlip Asset Management is an authorized financial services provider. Morning headlines for MoneyWeb. Transnet ups Cape Town port capacity to rescue fruit export season. Deciduous fruit volumes are down 14%. That's not the growing side. That's the export side. Business Day, AVR shares jump 8% as investors cheer trading update. It said its consolidated HEPs will be between 370 and 376 for the six months ending December. Morning markets, US was green, so new all-time highs. S&P up 0.3, Nasdaq up 0.4. Over in the east, it's uh, mixed. Although, yeah, we've got Sydney off 0.1, Tokyo off two-thirds of a percent. Hong Kong is green up 1.3 and Tencent green up 1.4%. Commodities properly mixed. Gold unchanged, 2045. Brent a little weaker at 79.55. PGM's green, platinum 909, palladium 946. Rand 19.05, Bitcoin 39,550. Top 40 opening call. Looking for a green open. 215 points or a third of a percent higher. MoneyWeb now on the money. Also available on podcast. Checking now with uh, Rekko Nairi. Uh, Rekko, appreciate the early morning. Rekko, of course, from Anchor. Uh, first part, a uh, quick first part. Why do stocks like the falling interest rate environment? Is it just a good old fashioned that they've all got debt and therefore the debt costs them less? Or is there perhaps more to it? Hi, Simon. Thanks for having me. It's always great to be on the show. Hello to your listeners. Um, so what we did is we looked at the average monthly return of the S&P 500 over three uh, distinct interest rate regimes, mm. uh, namely in periods of rising interest rates, in periods of flat interest rates, and then in periods of falling interest rates. In other words, in uh, cycles in which the mm. U.S. Fed was hiking, holding, or cutting. And uh, what we found is that in periods of rate hiking, uh, the S&P 500 on average lost 0.4% per month, which is a negative 5% in a year. And then in flat uh, rate cycles, the S&P 500 on average gained 1.2% per month, which is a positive 14% in a year. And then in periods of rate cutting, the S&P 500 gained 1.7% per month, uh, which equates to about uh, a positive 20% in a year. So clearly, uh, as you said, there's a strong empir- uh, empirical evidence to support the idea that uh, shares do indeed perform well when interest rates are falling or are flat. Uh, and to answer the question, Simon, uh, it really comes down to discount rates. Um, uh, of course. 
if, if you think about it, uh, a discount rate is the interest rate that is used to determine the present value of future cash flows. Mm-hmm. So basically, it helps us to determine the future cash flow uh, of an investment uh, and, and whether uh, the, the future cash flow of an investment will be worth more than the capital that's needed to actually fund the investment on the outset. And basically, what we see is that as interest rates fall, uh, discount rates also fall, and then the current value of future cash flows rise, and that obviously pushes stock prices upward. So we saw uh, a little bit of this dynamic or a lot of this dynamic uh, unfold during COVID. Uh, mm-hmm. Central banks, specifically within the US, they stepped in substantially uh, cutting interest rates in order to stimulate economic activity and prevent a prolonged downturn in the global economy. And that and that then subsequently sent equity valuations sto- soaring. So that's why stock prices rise as gotcha. interest rates fall. Yeah, that, that, that makes perfect sense. So then the second part of the question, which S&P sectors tend to outperform? I mean, we've got that 1.7%. That's the average. Which sectors do best in periods of falling rates? Yeah, so very interesting question, Simon. So um, what we did is we looked at the performance of the various S&P 500 sectors over the distinct phases of the business cycle since 1960. So if you think about it, 60 years, uh, mm-hmm. in 60 years, uh, we've had 11 slowdowns, uh, seven economic recessions, seven periods of recovery, and seven, seven uh, or rather 12 uh, subsequent uh, periods of economic expansion. And what it showed us is that in periods of economic recovery and economic uh, uh, recession, uh, which are usually marked by falling interest rates, then it's uh, sectors that are defensive in nature that have showed the most resilience. So in other words, businesses that are not tied to discretionary spending. If you think of the mm-hmm. likes of the consumer staples, uh, in other words, the likes of Coca-Cola, uh, the utilities, the energy companies, uh, mm-hmm. and healthcare companies, you know, if you think of uh, the likes of Johnson & Johnson or Pfizer, they have consistently outperformed the overall market uh, by an average of as much as 10% in the last uh, six uh, of the past seven recessions. Then in periods of economic recovery, which also are marked by falling or flat interest rates, then the dynamic here is lower borrowing costs that then stimulate the economy. And then in these specific periods, it's been real estate and uh, consumer discretionary uh, or discretionary spending Mm -hmm. uh, that's driven the market. So if you think of uh, the consumer defensives, the likes of Estee Lauder or L'Oreal, or uh, the consumer services brands, the likes of Domino's or or Yum Brands, which obviously owns KFC, uh, they have outperformed uh, as much as 33%, uh, uh, while real estate as a sector uh, has had an average period return of 39% over these periods. Okay, I take the point on that, and that perhaps is what real estate needs after a horror. I was going to say four years, but actually it goes back to 2017-18. Maybe it's time for real estate to shine. Rekunari from Anchor, always appreciate the early morning. Your money can do more when it's investing with conviction. Our partnership with J.P. Morgan Asset Management gives you access to in-depth, broad market research and high-return investment strategies. So invest in a select set of companies with long-term structural growth potential with Stanlib's Global Growth Fund. Seek more returns at stanlib.com forward slash more. Stanlib Asset Management is an authorized financial services provider. MoneyWeb now on The Money. 
Chatting now with uh, Lulu Kruger, economist at PwC. Lulu, appreciate the early morning time. We've got MPC tomorrow. Um, before we delve into what they might do, my big head scratch at the moment, and I don't know if you have the answer. Uh, by, by reports, Kubernaidu has left. So that leaves us three deputies, the governor, that's four. What happens if we get a 2-2 split vote? Do they just carry on debating? <laughs> I, I don't know. It's a good question. It's a very good question. I'm sure they have they have some kind of you know way in which they in which they um will handle that. Although I personally think if we look at the last couple of meetings, yeah. the chances of a split uh, right now is getting smaller. A couple of months ago, I would have been very worried about that. But yeah, at the moment, I think they'll go in the same direction. That's a good point because the last MPC there was unanimous, whereas before those there, yes. had, there had been some splits. So, so the MPC, the, the consensus is that rates have have peaked. We are in the holding space. Do you concur with that? Are we now sort of starting to talk? When do rates start to come down, rather than are we going to get another increase? Yes, I wouldn't say that an increase is completely out of, mm. you know, there's absolutely no chance of that happening, although it's slim. It's very slim. And even if you listen to what the governor has been saying in his last couple of speeches, he's been consistently saying, listen, if the situation changes, we'll have to react. And if the rest yeah. of the world um, change their direction. Although I must say, if we look at our, uh, you know, we've, a typical economist we have our models um and uh it's there's a very slim chance but not a complete impossibility of one more rate hike although at the moment um i would I would put that at less than 5% of, of something like that happening. I take the point on that, and that perhaps is the key thing, which is you, you yeah. want your MPC to be to be data-dependent uh, and actually look at the numbers rather than, I don't know, be swayed by folks like me who would like lower rates. That's true, and I think the, the MPC really um, has their focus on where inflation expectations are going so yes the the inflation numbers that are coming out they will look at that but they already have a view on where inflation should be going and that's what they make their decisions uh, on uh, they want to direct inflation in a particular direction and if they see that in a couple of months time not going in that direction that actually weighs more as the, uh, than the current or historical um inflation rates and that would be their key driver and that's the uncertainty that they're working with at the moment and that's why while um i i I suppose in a similar vein as i said there's a small chance very small chance of a de of a an increase um you know in the in the short term at the same time i would say um you know there there was an outside chance that we would see a reduction in interest rate in this first quarter in, in Jan, Jan or March. And at the moment, that looks very unlikely. And even the second half of the year, uh, where we thought, okay, there's a good chance of that happening, that's starting to become, you know, a, a big question mark. And we're looking towards the end of 2024 or the third quarter at least uh, before we might see some some reprieve and some reduction in interest rates starting to come. In other words, I mean, and if that plays out, now I appreciate it, 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 modeling is hard and lots can change between now and then because your model is also data dependent. We're looking at maybe only a, a half a percent, maybe three quarters of a percent. In other words, prime 11.25 or maybe just 11.0 by the end of the year. 
That's absolutely right. It's going to be a slow. So we're in a holding pattern for a while, mm. and it's going to be a slow uh, downward trend from there. It's not going to be what we saw during COVID when rates were, yeah. you know, suddenly very, very quickly uh, reduced. It's not going to be that. So, um, unfortunately, although I think consumers can take, you know, a bit of a breather to say, okay, this is, it, it will probably not get worse. It's not going to, to change dramatically and it's going to be a slow process from then going forward. There are just so many things at the moment that are creating inflationary risks outside of South Africa. And, um, and I think that is probably the biggest challenge that we're sitting with. Geopolitical uncertainty, um, supply chain mm-hmm. uh, uncertainty that's coming from that. Um, you know, if you see, um, okay, uh, luckily it seems that on the food end, uh, you know, we were talking about a potential uh, lower rainfall season for South Africa in the summer rainfall areas, uh, El Nino, if, mm-hmm. I'm, if I'm not mistaken. That looks like that is less of an issue than what we originally thought. So that gives us a bit of, you know, light in the end of the tunnel in terms of food inflation. But fuel... Um, that remains probably one of the biggest aid scratches, fuel and energy prices. Yeah, risks abound, I suppose. We'll leave it there. Lula Kruger, PwC, appreciate the early morning. And that's our poll today, LinkedIn and Twitter. What do you think? Uh, are we going to have more holding? Is it time to cut? What about an increase? Lula says not a big chance of that, but not out of the question. Have your vote, have your say, LinkedIn and Twitter. Your money gives a damn. If it could protest and sign petitions, your money would. But your money can do more than that. When you invest in Stanlib's Infrastructure Investment Fund, beyond getting solid returns, you are helping to build a more sustainable future through job creation and positive economic growth. Damn right you are. Invest for more impact at stanlib.com forward slash more. Stanlib Asset Management is an authorized financial services provider. MoneyWeb now on the money. Chatting now with uh, Conway Williams, Head of Credit Depressant Investment Management. Conway, appreciate the early morning. ESG, environmental, social and governance. Ideally, it leads to an alignment between financial goals with eth- ethical and sustainable practices. But in practice, in, in reality, it's not always about doing good. And it's, it's frankly become a little bit messy over the last couple of years as to exactly what ESG really means, particularly in terms of trying to identify it within uh, companies and businesses. Hi, morning, Simon, and good morning to everyone. Uh, we've just recently released our responsible investing mm. report where we detail how we don't use ESG to do good. We actually use it primarily as a risk management tool. And what we have found is that if you put risk management at the heart of what you do, you do not only res- um, achieve the desired outcomes of either understanding valuations a bit better or reducing default probabilities on your F- fixed interest funds or your credit investments. But there are also those second or third round effects, for example, as in doing good and achieving outcomes. But I think where it's got quite messy was, if you're looking at it from an impact perspective or a ESG fund type perspective, there's been a lot of greenwashing and the likes. Mm. And that is something that we steer clear from or steer clear of. We've always used it as more of a qualitative risk measure 
Mm-hmm. And what we've been able to do over the last while, being a systematic house, being a data-driven house, is build a methodology that actually quantifies what is largely qualitative risks. So again, just simplistically making sure that we understand or unearth risks before we enter into an investment and then using it as a tool to monitor investments for those softer type risks, such as do we believe in management teams? Can we trust the management teams? Is the um, actual board appropriately comprised? Is the management team have the, the appropriate experience? Or is the business just resilient enough um, from a long-term perspective? And that is, do they consider ESG in their DNA, uh, making sure that they consider the environment, consider the impact on the environment? consider their workforce yeah. or just that they have the appropriate people around the table to make the decisions. And that is why we would like to be in investing in resilient businesses, which ultimately means that the cash flows are protected, which again improves default risk or also valuations in our view. I, I, I see what you're saying there, and I, I get 100% the point around risk management. And in essence, that's at the core of investing. What you're doing here, as I understand, is, is using using data to drive the process within the SG and, and, yeah. and trying to remove that human bias. Because as humans, we are we are a bundle of bias. Yes, now that is very true. And we do that on various fronts. The first one is... You know, when you sit sitting in front of a management team and you're having discussions, you can get lost in the blue sky, in this, yeah. the amazing story <laughs> that you are being sold. We don't want to get lost in that story. So what we'll do is we'll have the data available. We would say, okay, cool. These, not only from the quantitative perspective, where we can have discussions on why are your margins dropping? Why is your ROE changed? Mm-hmm. What is your outlook in terms of your forecasted for revenue? What are your inflation insights? But we also do that from an ESG perspective, where we can showcase that our analysis says that you have these amount of people on the board, you don't have the diversity. This is your emission score. This is how it's changed over time. This is how you treat your staff. This is how many people is employed across your board. Um, so, so I think that is very important for us because then we can get the answers that we want. We want the data to lead the discussion. Mm-hmm. And then through our process, we've got a 67-factor ESG process. We can do an assessment of a counterparty or a company. We can do the relative value calculations to see how a company within a sector scores against its peers and against peers in other sectors. So that is what we try to do from a data perspective, not get caught up in the hysteria or the great stories that management has and will always try to sell you. Have that hard discussion up front and then do the analysis and then see how that impacts if the default risk or firm valuations. Yeah, because management have always got great stories that, that it's written into their contract. And, and and the thing is, you make the point, I mean, you mentioned there, for example, two, two, two examples, rising emissions, diversity. I mean, quantifiably, those are, 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 are risk areas. Uh, too much emissions, not enough diversity. You know, if, if we get this right, it, it really does have, good ESG does have a, an impact, a, a proper impact on, on long-term sustainabilities. Yep. And ultimately, profitability and therefore quality of the investment and underlying resilience Um, and we always provide the example where imagine going to a mall which Mm -hmm. is ultimately run by a REIT if you and I can't go to a mall and we can't swipe our cards to pay for our groceries or pay for whatever we are trying to purchase because it's load shedding then the cash flows of that underlying business is impacted negatively. Mm-hmm. The REIT is negatively impacted. Now imagine putting solar panels on a mall. Mm-hmm. People are allowed to shop even when there is load shedding. So while we achieve the 
impact of reduced emissions and the likes, we're actually making sure that the cash flows of that business are protected because the business is more resilient. It can operate in times where we all know that there's an energy issue in the country, load shedding and the likes. The business can actually operate in that time. So what we're trying to do is make sure that the cash flows are actually protected when we look at our assessment of default risk and how a business is actually making itself more resilient. And and ESG forms part of that because you're trying to have a long-term view of things, make your business resilient to various cycles or to events that you have no control over, such as load shedding. And then you, again, through that, you actually address environmental issues. You, fo- you foster positive social impact. You enhance governance. So you actually make your business case as a company much better. And then you are able to actually uh, obtain capital, whether it is from an equity perspective or raising debt funding, refinancing. Once an asset manager or investor sees that you have a very much more resilient business case, it's easier to raise capital or just grow your business. Yeah. And that is what we try to showcase to our investing companies, the positive impacts of embracing ESG in your process. Yeah, and I like it. And, and, and the, the, the theme that keeps coming, it's that resilience. And, 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 and perhaps that, that, that is at the core of it. You know, it's great if you can have a good quarter, but can you have 50 good quarters? That's really what matters. Conway Williams, Head of Credit, Prescient Investment Management. Appreciate the early morning. That's it for today. We're chatting with uh, Donovan Esslin from uh, Kelston Motor Group about the rise in used car sales. We asked if you'd bought a used car. Two-thirds said yes, indeed. A quarter said maybe for your next car. The rest of you, nope, you always want a new car. Have your vote. Have your say. LinkedIn and Twitter. This show is brought to you by Stanlib. Visit stanlib.com to get in touch with one of their investment specialists. Stanlib Asset Management is an authorized financial services provider. We're live every weekday morning, the MoneyWeb website in the app, 6.30 a.m. podcast, just after 7. Thanks to my team, Eddie, Nobohle, Nicole, to you for listening, my guests for their time. My name is Simon Brown. This is MoneyWeb Now. If you're loving the show, please leave us a positive rating in your podcatcher of choice. We'll chat again tomorrow, December holiday spend report. You've been listening to another MoneyWeb Now podcast, posted every weekday at 7 a.m. on moneyweb.co.za. MoneyWeb Now, on the money.